0: Good morning, church family. It's a great joy to come together on the Lord's Day and worship Him together as His people. Thank you to Matt and the team for leading us. If you do have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 22. 2 Samuel chapter 22. Last week, um, we dealt with a difficult passage. I'm sure some of you would remember that. Uh, this, eve- this morning we're not in an easier passage, but at least not as heavy, I hope. Uh, before we read the passage, I, I do think that it's necessary to-, to take note of a few things about the text um, so that we can read it with understanding and uh, hopefully with what I say after we read it makes some sense. Uh, First thing we need to note that in this passage we have a song of David, a psalm. In fact, we see the same song repeated for us in Psalm 18 with some, some variations in the original, but it's more or less the same song. So this passage parallels Psalm 18. Secondly, this particular psalm or song, uh, is written by younger David. If you look at verse 1, you see that it was written after the Lord saved David from Saul and his enemies. I agree with William Blakey that this was probably written around the events of 2 Samuel 7. When God gave David rest from all his enemies um, and he enjoyed uh, this rest, David had his, on his heart to build God a house. And at that point, remember 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David and this psalm ends with a reference to that covenant. Thirdly, uh, this psalm parallels Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, if you remember all the way back to that. Uh, Both of these uh, psalms or songs and prayers have similar themes, and so they echo one another, and the narrator of of Samuel purposely bookends his writings with these two psalms uh, because they together characterize and point out what Samuel is all about. Fourthly, uh, this psalm has a discernible structure. Uh, You'll see there uh, it starts off verse verse 2 to 4 with a description of David's devotion. And that devotion is based on David's deliverance in verse 5 to 20. And at the heart of this particular psalm is uh, David's righteousness in relation to God's righteousness even. And then again in verse 32 to 46 we see uh, David describing his deliverance and it ends off again with David describing his devotion or his worship and praise of God. And, and as we look at this passage now, you'll see I'm going to be working my way from the outside in as we look at this particular text. So, so those are some of the things to take note of in this particular psalm so that as we read it, we can um, understand it a bit better. So with that in mind, let's read this passage, uh, the whole chapter, and ask the Lord to help us in this. This is the word of the Lord here at 2 Samuel chapter 22 verse 1 And David spoke to the Lord the words of the song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul he said The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer my God my rock in whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation my stronghold and my refuge my savior you save me from violence I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the ways of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord to my God, I called from His temple, He heard my voice and my cry came to His ear. The earth, then the earth reeled and sh- sh- rocked, and the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy, thick clouds gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. And in the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the earth, of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not, wicked, I have not wickedly departed from Him. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord was, Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my clean, cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless you blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness." For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge. And he has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He chains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them, and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them down them through, so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strong for the battle, with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn aside, turn their backs, back, backs to me those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save them. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations, people whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out for my enemies, who exalted me above those who rose against me, who delivered me from men of violence, for this, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation He brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. And you so far, in the reading of God's word may reform our lives to its truth. Uh, Let's pray again very quickly. Yes, Lord, indeed, your word proves true, and indeed, you are a shield to those who take refuge in you. And based upon this promise, based upon the word that we've just read, we pray, dear Lord, that you'd lead us to yourself, that we would set our hearts upon you, that we would find your word even this morning to be true because it comforts and convicts and challenges and leads us, and that we would find you again to be our shield and our refuge, our only hope in life and death. And so we pray, dear Lord, take hold of us this morning, take hold of what belongs to you. We belong to you in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. I want you to imagine with me or think with me a little bit. Uh, What would you say is the song that defines your life? If you had to pick one song that we would know as being your song that defines you, what would that song be? Uh, What would it be about? What would be its themes? What would be its tone? You often see in memorials or funerals where the deceased person had the privilege of picking their own songs to be sung, songs that had special meaning to them and significance for them, And, and by implication, songs that became significant and meaningful for those who stayed behind. What would you say is your song? What would you say would be the theme and the focus of the song that defines your life? Well, in a sense, here we have a song of David that is presented in a way that defines David. As the writer of Samuel, of all the songs that he could have chosen from David, he quite surprisingly picks this song to cap off the life of David. And what is this song? What is its themes? What is its tone? Well, it's a song that's all about God. In fact, it's an emotionally charged and intense, rich song of praise to the God who is, the God who comes down with might, the God who overcomes his enemies, the God who who lifts up the humble, the God who keeps his people secure. And in the context of all of what we've seen in 2 Samuel, in all the failures of the men of Israel and the kings of Israel. This psalm draws our attention back to God. It draws our, our attention back to the one and only true God, Yahweh Himself. And in light of all of the sin, all of the struggle, all of the suffering we've seen in this book, the psalm wants us to see the necessity and the importance of having this God as your God, as your refuge. And the question that it almost imposes upon us is this, is this your God? In the light of all your struggles and all your suffering and all your sin, is this the God that you look to, that you find refuge in, that you own as your own. As we try and make sense of this psalm, as we try and work through it, I want you to see the three things about this God that we see, three things that this God deserves, three things that this God delights in, three things that this God does. And I trust that this will motivate us to approach this God, to appropriate this God as our God first thing I want you to see is the worship that this God deserves. The worship that this God deserves. In verse 2 to 4, and then at the end uh, of the psalm, verse 47 to 51, we see what one of the intentions of this psalm is. Uh, and that in- intention and that purpose can be summed up with one word, and, and that's worship. This psalm is, is meant to cultivate the worship of God in the people of God. This is the role that David plays here as he writes this song. He's a man of God engaged in the worship of God, and he's an example as the king to to the people of God. We might ask the question, what is worship? Uh, Worship, you need to realize, is more than just coming into this building and and singing a few songs. I, I, I like the way St. Clair Ferguson put it, He describes worship in his book, A Heart for God. He describes worship as being full of God in one sense. It's being so overwhelmed with God, overawed with God, that one's lips and one's life is consumed with praise for God, where all of who you are is engaged for all of who God is and all that he has done. He says this, Ferguson says this, we might say that worship is simply theology, doctrine, what we think of God going into top gear. Instead of merely thinking about Him, we tell of Him in prayer and praise and song how great and glorious we believe Him to be. i venture to say, that this is what we see here in David. David is so overawed with God. He's so full of God that he, that he cannot get it all out quickly enough. He explodes, as it were, with worship and praise. Just look at verse 2 again. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord. He is worthy to be praised. He can't get it out soon enough. Even verse 47, the Lord lives, and blessed be my rock. You brought me, you brought peoples down under me. You brought me out from my enemies. He even says, For this I will praise you, O Lord. See, see, David is so overawed with God. He's so filled with God that his words are, are gushing out like a river that's broken its bank. And the point to get is this. Here we see David in overawed worship, worship that should be true of all of God's people. When you see who this God is, when you realize what he's done and who he is, this is the kind of worship that he longs for, that he desires, that he delights in. And notice a few things about the God David worships here. The God that David worships is a personal God, the personal pronoun, me or my, is used 78 times in this chapter. This isn't just a God that David knows things about. No, this is a God whom David knows as his own. One of the first words that children learn, I'm sure you know, is mine, right? Mena. Well, in a childlike devotion, David is saying, "Mana, mine, my God, my God, my God. Even Psalm 18 adds one dimension that's missing in chapter 22 of Second Samuel. Uh, Psalm 18 verse 1 says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. And the point is, here we see a man who is enthralled with God, who is so in love with his God that he claims him as his own. He's overawed that this is his God that he can hold on to this God as Mana, my God. This is a personal God. But secondly, the God that David worships is a protecting God. All the images that David uses as God, as his rock, as his fortress, as his shield, all of these terms all speak of God as this protector and this preserver. A- another way to say that is this, this is a God who holds these people. This is a God who who never leaves or forsakes his own. This is a God who upholds his people in his everlasting arms. See, as David found himself in military campaigns, as David found himself in the struggles of the wilderness, as he found himself in the struggles of a divided and fallen kingdom, this must have given him such great comfort that his God is a protecting God. A God whom he holds onto as Mena, and a God who holds onto him as Mena. Excuse the Afrikaans for all the English guys. We <laughs> you see you're a protecting God. But thirdly, the God that David worships is therefore, as a result, a praiseworthy God. A praiseworthy God. Because he's personal, because he's owned as your own, because he protects and holds, this God is worthy of praise. This God is the worthy, worthy of every moment of your life, every word. Again, notice the intensity of David's praise here. Uh, uh, David, Dale Ralph Davis' description is, is quite accurate and poetic in itself. He says, David's machine gun exuberance arises from his utter inability to stretch his praise to match God's splendor. He can't say enough, but he will say much. He will pile up plaudits in his vain quest to overcome his delicious frustration of adequately lording Yahweh. Dear friends, this is the kind of worship that God deserves, worship overwhelmed with God, worship that is in awe of this praiseworthy God, a personal God who protects his people. A God who owns his people, and his people own him. This brings me to the first point of application, and the question I want us to ask this morning for ourselves is this, are we close to this God? I don't know about you, but when I read a psalm like this and passages like this, there's many like these, don't you long for a similar kind of experience? Don't you long for a similar kind of closeness and a similar kind of intensity because there's this intimacy with God? Perhaps I need to ask it this way. When was the last time you were overawed with God? When was the last time you were full of God because you recognized that he isn't just some guy somewhere there, but a personal God? A God who has an interest in you. Because you belong to Him, a God who holds you, and carries you. And I'm not talking here of an, an emotional experience where you get fuzzy, goosebumps, and stuff like that. No, that's that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your uh, intense theological experience, a, a point where you see God, truths about God, you marvel and you rejoice in God for who He is. Let's be honest, sometimes we lose sight of all that we have in our God. Sometimes we get so busy with this world that we lose sight of Him. We get sometimes so familiar even with the things of God, even as we engage in the things of God, that we lose sight of Him, that we forget Him. Sometimes we get so engulfed even in our sin Those secret sins, those besetting sins, those seemingly innocent sins, even good things at times, and the result is we lose our thirst for God. And a psalm like this reminds us that our God is personal. He wants His people. He wants to be close to them. He carries His people, and as a result, should we not seek Him? Should we not desire intimacy with him? Dear dear believer, don't lose sight of who your God is. If you've believed upon him, he is closer than a brother. He is a God who takes pleasure in his people. He says of them, mine. Surely you should call out and say, mine, in response. Uh, There's a famous prayer by Richard of, I don't know how to pronounce that name, Chester, the English guys can correct me later. It's a wonderful prayer that, can, that I think we should pray regularly. He prays this day by day, dear Lord, of three things I pray, to see Thee more clearly, to love Thee more dearly, to follow Thee more nearly. That, that should be our desire. That should be how we ought to worship God. So that's the first thing I want you to see, the worship that God Deserves. The second thing I want you to see is the work that God does. The work that God does. In verse 5 to 20, we see the motive behind David's worship. Even in verse 32 to 46, we again see the motive behind his worship in verse 47 and 51. And and, the, how these, and when we see how these sections relate, we realize that the worship of God is based and motivated because of the work of God in the life of David. And what is that work? Well, it is God delivering David from his many, many enemies. In verse 5 to 6, we are told that that David is surrounded with danger all around him. Sheol has entangled him. All these things. He's he's surrounded by danger. And therefore, as a result in verse 7, he he calls out to the Lord. And and then verse 8 to 20, God not only hears David... But God delivers him. Now now what's interesting about this particular section is is the style with which David describes this deliverance. I'm sure you you realize that. In verse 8 to 20, David uses the language of of theophany. That is God appearing in, in dramatic and cosmic proportions to save David from his enemies. Uh, The the picture we're given here is this this picture of this great and awesome God of heaven who who causes both heaven and earth to shake because he comes down with thunder and fire and with fierce anger. He devours David's enemies. He, He saves and secures David from all calamity. Now, David's descriptions here are quite hyperbolic. That is to say, they're quite over the top. They're over-exaggerated. In fact, David seems to be describing an event similar to to what we find in Exodus. Do you remember how in Exodus, how God led his people with a pillar of fire? Do you remember how he he thundered on Mount Sinai? David here describes his deliverance in, in similar cataclysmic terms. But the issue is this. We don't know of any such event in David's life. When God delivered David from Saul, it wasn't by way of Saul being consumed by thunderous fire from heaven that caused the earth to shake. No. When God delivered David, it was through the ordinary means of war. It was through the general movement of providence. Which begs the question then, why does David use these terms? Why couldn't he just have said, well, God delivered me from my enemies? Well, I believe David wants to impress upon us the might and the power of our God. He wants us to see that our God, who is personal, is infinitely powerful. Uh, Look again at verse 17 onwards. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Someone has described this narrative as as a he-me narrative, where we see that he, the one, true, living God, is for me. That's what David wants to impress upon us, this mighty, marvelous God who works for his people. This is an all-powerful God who is personally able to draw near and save and deliver and defend I remember in, high, in primary school, there was often uh, one or two nunchucks, bullies who thought they could try their luck with me. And, and my saving grace was my oldest cousin was a tough guy. And so whenever one of these nunchucks came around, I just said, listen, remember who my cousin is. Well, here we see something of that. David, as he's around, surrounded by his enemies, as he's surrounded by threats, he knows someone greater. He knows the true tough guy. And that's the point. He wants us to see that God works for his people. God is the one who defends his people. And you see that come out even in the second part of the psalm in verse 32 to 46. Not only does God work for his people, but he works through and in his people. In that section, David again describes how God delivers him from his enemies. But he adds another perspective. He adds this, that that God works through what he even does. That is, he tells us how he himself was involved. He he wasn't merely passive, as in verse 5 to 20, but he's active here. He speaks about how he pursued and consumed his enemies. He said that he beat them down and crushed them. Yet as he says all of this, he's quick to say that all of this is actually God working in and through him. Look at verse 38 to 49, 41. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me and destroyed me. And, and I destroyed them, sorry. The point point to get is this. David wants us to see that we serve a God who is at work. We serve a God who is powerfully able to save and strengthen his people. It is this work of God for his people that motivates our worship. This brings you to the second point of application for us. The second question asked, are we calling on this God If this is our God, if He is this great defender who is mighty and powerful, are we turning to Him in our difficulties, in our dangers? When you find yourself with ways of death encompassing you, when you see that the torrents of destruction assail you, when that meeting at the doctor doesn't go as you hoped, when that phone call comes with bad news, who do you go to? Who are you going to call? Don't call the Ghostbusters or your mom. No, call upon the Lord. He hears His people. He is attentive to their cry. The psalmist in Psalm ten seventeen has this great assurance, O oh Lord, You hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. We're meant to see that the God we serve is a God who is for his people. So you can know many things about God. But until you know that this God is for you, all your knowledge is incomplete and ineffective. Until you know that God is your God, that you belong to Him and He belongs to you, until you know that He saves and strengthens His people, all your knowledge will do you no good. But if you know that this is your God, that you belong to Him and He belongs to you, then it does you world of good because you know that you're not alone. Because you know you can see through all the struggles and afflictions and know that God indeed is at work. The Christian has greater confidence than David. David was motivated to praise and worship because he saw how God saved him from Saul. If you're a Christian, has God not saved you from a greater Saul, your sin? From death itself, from the consequences of your sin? See, God is at work in his people. He has saved them and he continues to work for them. For those who are called and who love him, he works everything out for the good of their end or for for their good. And and more than that, God is not only working all things for their good, he is working in and through them both to will and work for his good pleasure. See, if this is your God, if, if this is my God, why would we not call upon him? Why would we not rely upon him more and more? So we see here that our God is a God who works, and it's this aspect of our God that ought to motivate and flare up our worship of him. The third thing I want you to see from this passage is the all-heartedness that this God delights in. The all-heartedness that this God delights in. In verse 21 to 33, we come to the heart of the psalm and we come to, in all honesty, the biggest problem in the psalm. We, we find here a little hand grenade for us that's going to challenge our theology a little bit. To understand why I say that, we need to keep the logic of the psalm in mind. Uh, in the bookends of the psalm, we see how David engages in the worship of God, and the motive for the worship of God is the work of God in delivering David. But, but the question becomes, why does God deliver David? The answer is given to us in verse 21 to 25, and the answer is because David is righteous. Look at verse 20 onwards. He brought me up out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. What was it that delighted God about David? It goes on, the Lord dealt with me according to my Righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. For I kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from him, for all his rules were before me, and from his statute I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the to according to my cleanness in his sight. I know exactly what you're thinking. You're thinking, what? David is righteous? Say it ain't so. This David, this same David who lusted after a woman and violated her and slept with her and committed adultery and deceived and murdered to cover up his tracks. This David is righteous? And the problem is even more than that. If you remember 2 Samuel 7, 18 onwards, when God makes a covenant with David, David responded this way, Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was not a small thing in your sight, O Lord. You have spoken of your servant's house for great while, well because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord very different to what we read here. How can David move from, it's all you, God, to now saying, it's me, God? Did you see the problem. Now, don't let anyone tell you it's an easy problem to solve. It isn't, but here's my take in it, and hopefully it makes sense. If I don't know how to solve this problem, we're all in trouble, not because I'm great, but oh, my word. <laughs> the key to this problem is verse 1. Look at verse 1. We're told that David writes this before he sins against Bathsheba. In particular, it was when David delivered, or God delivered David from Saul. And so we need, this, we need to read this in relation to Saul. Whereas Saul turned away from God, turned away from God's ways, David we know didn't. And in that sense, relatively speaking, David was blameless. Although David at times weakly turned away from God, he did not wickedly turn and depart from God. One commentator notes this, in this issue between himself and his opponents, right was on the side of David, or else Yahweh would not have delivered him. Now look particularly at at the verses, I encourage you to always keep your Bible in front of you, look at verse 21 and 25, Uh, both of those verses pull this section together, they bracket it together, both verse verse 21 and 25 reference David's righteousness and his cleanness. And in between those two verses, David describes what righteousness he has in mind. Unlike Saul, David kept the ways of the Lord. He didn't depart from God. He didn't forsake God. Unlike Saul, David kept God's rules before him. David didn't turn away from God's statutes. And as a result, he says in verse 24, I was blameless before him. Now that word, Hebrew word for blameless, often means being whole or complete. And therefore, it often speaks of one's moral integrity. Listen to how David explains it himself in Psalm 101 verse 2. He says there, I will ponder the way that is blameless, same word. But what does that blameless mean? What does that word mean? He carries on, Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. And, and here's the point I'm trying to get at, and I'm hoping you're getting as well. David isn't claiming sinlessness but sincerity. He isn't claiming to be absolutely innocent. He's claiming to have walked with integrity. If you don't believe me, listen to Dale Ralph Davis on this. David does not claim perfection in life's particulars, but wholeheartedness in life's commitment. When David speaks of his righteousness and purity, he does not point to sinless perfection, but life direction. He's not supporting a pharisaical pride over errorless obedience, but expressing a faithful loyalty via consistent obedience. all of this is important for it is such faithful, whole-hearted, though afflicted servants that Yahweh delights to rescue. See, in the Bible, we need to make a distinction between absolute righteousness, that is, absolute perfection, sinlessness, innocence, and and what we could call relative righteousness, which speaks of sincerity and, and integrity. David isn't claiming the former, he's claiming the latter, he's claiming to be sincere. What David says is no different to what he said of Noah in Genesis 6 9. Noah was righteous, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Was Noah sinless? Not on your life, but he was called righteous. What David says here is also no different to what he said of Job, Job in Job 1 verse 1, where he's described as blameless and upright, who feared God and who turned from evil. Again, was Job sinless? No, yet he was considered righteous. And so it is with David here. He was a man who at this point at least walked with God and feared God. But the question becomes, would David have said all of this after Bathsheba and Uriah? I don't think so. Look at verse 26. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. David knows the general principle that God repays people in kind according to their deeds. God treats us with what we deserve. But here's the wrinkle for David post post Bathsheba. Look at how he carries on. With the crooked, you make yourself tortuous. I would venture to say that if David knew this as a young man, then the David who had fallen into sin would know that he would have no grounds to claim to be righteous. Why? Because his crookedness had been found out. And here's why I think the writer puts this psalm here. After David's infamous sin and catastrophic failures, we need to remember what David once knew yet forgot. We need to remember that God delights in wholeheartedness. In fact, one passage I think helps us in this is Samuel's farewell. Do you remember Samuel's last words to the nation in 1 Samuel 12:20, which is quite applicable not just to Israel but to David and even to us? He said, and it says there, And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. In other words, despite your sin, despite your many failures, despite the fact that you have, like David, sinned and made a mess of things, return to the Lord, seek Him with wholeheartedness. Why? Because this God delights in it when men and women humble themselves before Him and seek Him with sincerity. This God delights in it when humble people are drawn to him because he draws near to them when they, when they seek him with wholeheartedness. Look at how David carries on verse 28. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. The implication is this David, when he says to be blameless, he's not doing this out of pride. He's not doing this out of haughty self righteousness. No, when he claims to be blameless, he does it with his confidence, not actually in in himself, but in his God. Look how he carries on For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a tube, and by my God I can leap over the wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is the rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge, and he has made my way blameless. See, it is as David takes his refuge in God that he is blameless. It is as David sets his heart wholly upon the Lord, wholeheartedly in devotion, that he finds true confidence. Now, I know I've belabored this first point. This is a good and hopefully it hasn't blown up this morning. But let me ask the last point of application. Are we confident in this God? Uh, The commentator Mary Evans rightly points out that there is something attractive about David's confidence in this psalm. Yes, there's an element of, of youthful overconfidence, but I don't think it's a proud, sinful confidence that we see here. No, far from it. David's evidence is here a confident faith in God. He says, this is my strong refuge. This God is my strong refuge. He has made my way blameless. See, before David sinned, his confidence was in the Lord. And may I suggest to you, after he sinned, he came to realize in a, in a deeper, more profound way that his confidence, his faith, his hope, his boasting has to be in his God and not in himself. And, and dear friends, this is the conclusion we need to come to. We must not put our confidence in ourselves, In our religious efforts, we must not even put our confidence in the times in which we are relatively righteous compared to the sinners of this world. No, for all our relative righteousness, for all our sincerity and integrity, we are all absolutely unrighteous. We're all absolutely unrighteous before for the sight of God. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We have all, by our sin, proven that none is righteous. We have all come to see, hopefully, by God's grace, our own sin in David. And so our confidence must be in God. Our confidence and our hope and our faith must be set upon this rock. And in the promises and the provision that he makes in and through the greater David, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. One way to helpfully read this psalm, I did not preach it this way, but one helpful way to read this psalm is to read it as coming from the lips of Christ and not David. In fact, Paul quotes verse 50 and applies it directly to Jesus in Romans 15 verse 9. And the implication is this, this psalm is fulfilled actually in Jesus Jesus is the one who can legitimately sing this song. Although David is relatively righteous in comparison to Saul, Jesus is absolutely righteousness in comparison to God's law. And and therefore, he should be our confidence. He should be the one we trust in. As I conclude and bring this to a close, listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 31. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, that is because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. You became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Dear friends, dear believer, let Jesus Christ be your boast. Put your faith in Him. Set your confidence in Him. And if you do, if you put your faith in Him, you will be counted as righteous in the sight of God. Whatever song you choose to define you, make sure that song is about God and that its theme is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Listen to this song of Moses. It was actually referred to earlier. Exodus 15 verse 2. Moses' song was this. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. Dear friends, there's a song to echo as your song. See, the narrator of 2 Samuel breaks the narrative and inserts the song of David so that we would be reminded that this God ought to be our song. This God ought to be our salvation. This God ought to be our strength. His light lightens our darkness. He is our strong refuge. And so may we draw close with Him with personal worship. May we call upon Him to work powerfully for and through us and may we set our confidence in Him with whole heart to devotion. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank You for this passage. We thank You that we've only really scratched the surface of it. We pray that You would use this this morning to draw us again to Yourself, that the confession of our hearts and the song that we sing would be that this is our God. He is our strong refuge. He makes us blameless. The Lord, may this be true of every one of us. For those who are perhaps weak and flailing believers this morning. For those who are perhaps nominal this morning. And perhaps even more so for those who are unbelieving. Draw them to yourself. Show them who you are. In Christ we pray. Amen.